Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. People of Latin American descent in the United States have a complex relationship to the racial and ethnic schema of this country. That's in part because racial formation occurred here along a black-white dyad. For Latinos, some of us identify much more with our country of origin than any larger ethnic or racial group, while others feel equally as strongly that they're white or black or native or a mix of races. And as the most recent census shows, these determinations are experiencing a major upheaval, In 2010, more than half of Latinos selected white as their race. In 2020, that number fell to 20%. That's a huge change, and it's the jumping-off point for our show today. That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Across Spain's empire in the Americas, there was a curious type of painting, the Casta paintings, as in cast, that delineated racial categories and hierarchies. I remember I saw a set of them at the Denver Art Museum one time. Sixteen different paintings laid out different mixes of people. Indigenous people, Spaniards of different kinds, African peoples, Chinese and Indian immigrants, each mix named individually. This was a complex accounting enterprise. Look back at the U.S. census data structures, and they tell a very different story. For the first 50 years, the racial categories are simply white and then black, free or enslaved. That changed through time to add, quote, Indians, then Chinese and other Asian peoples. But that basic racial formation in America, forged because of chattel slavery, has remained the dominant racial logic to which other groups have been soldered. For other people of the Americas, variously called Hispanic, Latino, Latinx, Latine, and occasionally more derogatory things, the story is even more confused. In 1930, for one census, Mexicans got our own category— Then we slid under the radar until 1980 when the government rolled out the Hispanic ethnicity section, which clumped together peoples with wildly different migration narratives, countries of origin, and populations. There were reasons to do this, as we'll hear, but much was obscured in this conversion, too, and some of those fault lines have reemerged, as the most recent census indicates. Here to discuss where we are now, we have an all-star panel of scholars who have studied racial and ethnic formation among our peoples here in the U.S. and in this hemisphere so let me welcome, first, Cristina Mora. She is Associate Professor of Sociology and Chicano Latino Studies and the co-director of the Institute of Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley and author of the book, Making Hispanics. Welcome, Cristina. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So happy to have you. We also have Laura Gomez. She's Professor of Law, Sociology, and Chicano, Chicano, and Central American Studies at UCLA and author of Inventing Latinos, A New Story of American Racism. Welcome. Good morning, Alexis. 
And we also have Paul Joseph Lopez Oro. He is Assistant Professor of Africana Studies at Smith College. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so good to have you here. Um, Christina Mora, I, I want to start with you. Um, you know, born in Mexico, but I came up in the U.S. in a mixed Mexican-American household that was decidedly anti-Hispanic, like the term that is, tracing the term to sort of Republican political maneuvering. But your work has actually helped me see new dimensions to this. Could we start with you talking about where the term Hispanic came from? Um, well, there's a difference from where the just the word comes from. That's, where it's political uh, application. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the idea of the category, you know, in many ways in the U.S. has its origins in a real sort of um, struggle for recognition. And there were two ways, two sort of major uh, movements that were happening in the 1960s and the 1970s really inspired by uh, the work of black activists in the in the civil rights movement, um, you saw the rise of really Chicano and Mexican American activists in the Southwest organizing and seeking federal and national attention. Puerto Ricans were doing the same thing, sort of decrying the systematic segregation of Latino children in subpar schools, poverty in barrios in the Northeast and in the Southwest. Um, and joblessness and the lack really of any attention or any sort of major national federal uh, focus on the ills of these communities. And so began a process of initially coming together, right? Um, Initially, it was Mexican-American and Puerto Rican activists uh, staging these small-scale conferences in the 1960s and the 1970s. And when they realized is that every time they went to the Johnson administration, um, they were often told that, you know, they weren't necessarily a national issue. They didn't merit federal attention. Hmm. That the federal government paid attention to a group that was a national, that they were a problem for mayors. (laughs) They were a problem for uh, state governors. They were an issue that was regional at most. And so this began then a serious conversation about what ways can we get national attention in the struggle for recognition. And so one easy way was to figure out political unity and political alliances. Part of this is because both Puerto Rican and Mexican activists, you know, could conclude that while they had very different experiences, uh, in the sense that Puerto Ricans had some level of citizenship, Mexican-Americans sort of struggled with the immigration and mass deportation issues, um, that both groups were similarly never fully accepted as American. They weren't sort of seen as fully incorporated uh, part of the American population. And so coming together could resolve this sort of idea of being a national issue. Because when you could say that you were Raza or Hispanic or Latin or Latin American or a variety of the different labels that they would use, like Spanish speaking, Spanish surname, then you could say that you existed not just in the Southwest or not just in Spanish Harlem, but you could say that you existed from north to south, east to west, and that you were truly a national population that merited national attention. And then, of course, creating these forms of unity brought about sort of broader discussions of what are the boundaries? Who are we? What do we look like? Should we include Cubans? Should we not, right? There were lots of discussions 
about the issue of, uh, you know, class, skin color, language, nationality fractures, and how they would even manage sort of this new category. And I think then in the broader story, we tend to think that somehow the category was just imposed. And while the government and the Census Bureau is a major, a major player in the story, right? In many ways, without the Bureau's sort of consent and sort of creation of this category, um, I don't think it would be as heavily institutionalized as it is today. Um, one thing not to forget is that, you know, there was an underlying struggle for recognition and at the basis just sort of a fight on, you know, the role of many of these activists to bring attention to the plight of Latino communities in the United States. Um, Laura Gomez from UCLA, you know, I want to take this conversation even a little bit further back in time with the census. Can you talk to us about how these racial categories formed in the U.S.? Like, what was the process of, of creating what we now call race in the U.S.? Well, I appreciate that question because in your in your little preview about the census, um, you know, you 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 did a partial job of that. But I think that I want to go back and just kind of uh, amend what you said. If we sure. look more closely, right, which between, say, 1850 and 1920, for example, we do see the emergence um, it later in that period of the first Asian American national origin categories as races, which is fascinating, right? So we had white, black, Indian, although we also always had, well, from about the turn of the 20th century, we had some kind of something like an other category. Um, but, but in this late um, 18th century period where slavery was, was, was thriving but controversial already, right, um, obviously leading up to the Civil War, we actually had census categories that that referred to the blood quantum that one was um, black, right? So uh, uh, octoroon and quadroon, like one and mulatto, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, so this was a really, this is a really good illustration of how race is made, right? Because we have all these fractionated categories, which are very useful in places where there are a lot of. Um, where there's a lot of racial mixture, like the U.S. South at that time, right? And today, certainly. Um, But then we have the emergence or the kind of consolidation in the 1920s of this one-drop rule, where if you have any perceptible um, African ancestry, you're going to be considered Black. And that served particular purposes, such as enforcing Jim Crow after the Supreme Court said, hey, green light for Jim Crow after Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896. So race has always been fluid, right? And and it's interesting to note that we never saw under the race category on the census, we never saw Italians, we never saw Jews, we never saw European national origin groups as racial groups, even though there was no doubt, and and we know discrimination against those groups, it wasn't considered racial discrimination. And a lot Um, of other racial categories, right? Alpine and Slavic and all these things that were floating around that eugenics movement, right? That we never saw in the census. Right. Right. That we never saw. Yeah. So that's kind of a kind of a general picture. Yeah. You know, you also talk a little bit about the reverse one drop rule 
for a lot of people now called Latinos, right? That that if you had any white blood or any European ancestry, then you were you were categorized uh, as white. Yeah, this is the complexity that I write about in uh, an earlier book, Manifest Destinies, The Making of the Mexican-American Race, which really looks at when you have the invasion of Mexico in 1846 by the United States, and then you have the the taking, uh, military taking of half of Mexico's northern territory, then you have this this question of what are we going to do with these Mexicans who live in this land that we've just taken, which was about 120,000 people at the time in 1848. And, you know, one way of dealing with that became, we will just wink our eye and assume that we're going to treat those people as white, a kind of liminal whiteness, um, what I call off-white in in that book, actually. (laughs) And, and so, that was kind of the opposite of how we were treating Blacks. Both of them were in the service of white supremacy, I will argue, but it was an opposite way of thinking about blood quantum. And of course, we had a different system for thinking about Native Americans as well. Yeah. We're talking about how Latinos identified on the 2020 census and the nuances of racial identity with Laura Gomez, professor of law, sociology and Chicano, Chicano and Central American studies at UCLA, who's also author of Inventing Latinos, a new story of American racism. We're also joined by Christina Mora, associate professor of sociology and Chicano Latino studies and the co-director of the Institute of Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley and author of the book Making Hispanics, as well as Paul Joseph Lopez Oro, assistant professor of Africana studies at Smith College, who we're going to hear from when we get back from this break. We also want to hear from you. Have you struggled with how to identify your race on the census? If you're someone who identifies with Latin American roots, how do you identify racially? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about how Latinos identified on the 2020 census and the nuances of racial identity with UC Berkeley's Christina Mora, UCLA's Laura Gomez, and Smith College's Paul Joseph Lopez Oro. Um, Paul, I I did want to come to you. Um, I'd love you to talk a little bit with us about the black diaspora context here uh, or the hemispheric context of this discussion. You know, we've been having you know, largely like a, an American discussion about the way that things uh, formed here. What can we learn about this kind of racial categorization by looking at other countries and, and transnational movements? Yeah, so thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be in this conversation. Um, I do want to start off with also 
kind of uh, sharing my positionality, my worldview as a third generation Brooklynite, Black Honduran of Garifuna descent, whose grandparents is exodus from Central America's Caribbean coast is one about escaping the banana plantations of the United Fruit Company. Mm. I, I share that positionality to talk about geography, to talk about the East Coast. And I think um, all of these things shape uh, racial identification. I think all of these sh shape the ways in which folks with Spanish surnames check what boxes and what boxes they don't check. Mm -hmm. um, but in particularly, when we think about um, the nuances hemispherically, and when we think about Black and Indigenous communities throughout Latin America and the Caribbean, um, we have to turn specifically to Nicaragua. Um, Nicaragua in 1987 um, is the first Latin American nation state to adopt multicultural citizenship, right? So this is a, 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 a political mobilization led by Black and Indigenous communities in Nicaragua for state recognition, which doesn't necessarily immediately turn to census, right? There's been census data. George Reed Andrew does this brilliant work on the history of census collection in Latin America, but what the shit from multicultural citizenship in Latin America does is that it literally creates a space for political representation. And I think uh, the nuances that a Black and Indigenous communities have been asking for in Latin America. So even when we think about just currently the 2020 uh, census in Mexico, that there's 2.5 million Black Mexicans, right? So there's literally 2.5 million Black Mexicans who have checked off the category of Afro-Mexicana, Afro-Mexicano uh, on their census. And I think it's um, very telling to what's both happening um, in terms of wanting political representation, but also fighting to be, um, legible in spaces and nation states that use the racial project of mestizaje uh, to negate the existence of Black and Indigenous communities. So tell us a little bit about that concept for people who maybe are less familiar with it. Yeah, so I, you know, mestizaje, and once again, the worldview in, in the context of Central America, I do want to talk a little bit about how mestizaje as a racial project that emerges uh, towards the building of nation states, right? Right after the wars of independence in Latin America. And it's a project that um, essentially criollos, um, Spanish, the descendants of Spanish conquistadores that stay in political power after the wars of independence, uh, create this ideology of the nation state as being racially mixed, right? As a space of, uh, Todos somos iguales. We are all the same. We're mixed uh, with European, uh, with indigenous and African. Most versions of mestizaje in Central America uh, actually do not include la tercera raíz, which is um, a very common phrasing in Mexico. So most Central American nation states actually deny the existence of an African root. Mm -hmm. um, and Jose Vasconcelos um, is kind of a, a, the architect around mestizaje and la raza cósmica, the work of political theorist Juliet Hooker and theorizing race in the Americas gives us a deeper understanding of, particularly of how mestizaje has traveled, right? So even in my own work, I articulate mestizaje as a continued project uh, through Latinidad, right? So this is why there's this insurgency by Black Latinx folks and indigenous Latinx folks um, within the field of Latinx studies to create a space where mestizaje is not the dominant narrative. Mm -hmm. Laura Gomez, I know you've studied this as well. Do you want to uh, just respond to any of Paul's points? I really appreciate you articulating um, all of that, 
Paul, and I, I will respond and also disclose my positionality since we're on the radio, right? So I'm, a, uh, uh, I would say on the spectrum, a, a lighter skinned uh, Mexican American. I don't ever in Los Angeles in my daily life get, uh, get, I don't ever take, get taken for white, but you know, that's in Los Angeles, right? Where we have a different kind of, kind of makeup. Um, but, but I want to, I guess I want to also say that everything that Paul, I want to associate myself with Paul's comments, but I want to say that this 2.5 million Afro-Mexicanos in the census is out of a population of one, 127.6 million people. It is vastly us underestimating the Afro-Latino uh, presence in Mexico in terms of ancestry, mm -hmm. which we see among Mexican-Americans here in the United States. So I would say, what is it that is, you know, so yes, we have to account for the, the racism in Mexico, but I want to shift the conversation to the United States. Mm -hmm. And we need to account for that racism from Latin America meeting the racism in the United States and how that influences dynamics. Let me give you one example. If you look at the Puerto Rican census, now I haven't, I, they haven't released the, the, the specific data from the 2020 census, but if you look in 2010 and, and past, Puerto Ricans on the island vastly um, resisted saying that they were black or part black and instead just said that they were white. But if you looked at Puerto Ricans on the mainland, they were way were saying that they were black in a higher um, percentage or saying that they were um, mixed race in a much higher percentage. And so that's, that's kind of an interesting way, I think, of looking at that legacy. But, but I want to resist the framing of it as just, and I'm not saying you're doing this, Paul, I want to, for the audience, just resist the, the idea that this is like, Latinos coming to the United States and importing their ideas about racism, because most Latinos are not actually immigrants, right? And so there's plenty here, right? And it's more, I like to think of it more as how did these two racist systems, these two white supremacist systems meet? And how does that shape, you know, who Latinos are and what they are saying in 2020 about the census? There are plenty of racisms to go around, that's for sure. Um, Christina Mora, I wanted to ask you, I, I wanted to now that we've kind of gotten into, dug into some of this background, I would want to ask about the specific things that we saw in this 2020 census, which was this pretty marked decline of people marking, you know, people who otherwise are, are you know, kind of saying, yes, I have uh, Hispanic ethnicity, and I know we, Laura, you may want to talk about more about whether it should be an ethnicity uh, later, but people who've marked that Hispanic ethnicity and then stopped marking white uh, for race. Can you just talk about that kind of both in historical context as well as just like this 2020 um, fact is, is pretty uh, startling? Yeah, we have a basically a meteoric shift, right, in the racial um, identification of Latinos, which sort of just falls from like, whereas some other race used to be one or number two in previous census from 1980 till now, it's now the number one category, almost at about 45%. And the white category has dropped tremendously. Uh, at around 20% down from once a high of 50 something percent, right? And so um, that sort of all came about in the 2020 census. And I think there are a lot of things, a lot of factors to do with that. 
One for me um, as a researcher on this has always just been the uncomfortable fact of the separate ethnicity and race questions. Um, ask, ask many folks how they fill out the census and they will often tell you um, that they're confused, that the mm -hmm. census is confusing for them. Um, if you ask my mom, my mom's mom, uh, my parents are both from Mexico. Um, my mom's dad is uh, phenotypically, can, he could, I think, in some context, pass for white, although I never met him. Uh, and my grandmother was from a Purepecha line of uh, tribe in, in Michoacan. And so my mom and her brothers and sisters sort of go through life in sort of in, in this Mexico way. And they come to the United States and they look at these categories and it's, it stumps them, right? They know that they're Latino or Hispanic, but they don't know what to say for race. And I think historically, we have seen that. We saw it since the first time in 1970 when the Bureau tried this weird Spanish origin test category, right? For 50 years, <laughs> the Bureau really has been trying to sort of stuff this like separate race question to a lot of Latinos. And what we see is that, yes, for some, for some about now, according to the 2020 census, for about 20% of Latinos, these discrete categories as either Black or white or Asian or American Indian, for some, those absolutely do exist. It absolutely explains their white Latino status or their Black Latino status or their Asian Latino status. But for the vast majority, it simply doesn't. And most of those are folks that are checking off this other race box, right? And then most of them are writing in national origin or they're writing in some variation of Latino or they're just putting Hispanic or Latinx again. And we've seen this and you know, what surprises me, I think lots of folks always sort of harp on, oh, look at how large the white category is growing or shrinking. And what surprises me is that after 50 years of the Bureau continuously telling Latinos that they should mainly check white, you know, if you think about the ways that the Bureau has always reclassified those that check other as white, unless they can figure out that they're, you know, specifically Black or something else. Um, after 50 years of the Bureau telling Latinos they're white, it still hasn't stuck. And in 2020, you see um, that once again, this, these discrete categories, these sort of telling Latinos that they're just Black or white or Asian or Native American just doesn't stick for many of them. And I think it's important to also understand the context in which the 2020 census was being taken. You know, one is the Trump administration and if there was ever a time when Latinos knew that they were never fully accepted as American and knew that they had a racialized experience and knew that they were simply, uh, you know, seen as others in this country, even if they were born here, even if they had been here for generations, it was certainly overtly in uh, during the Trump administration. And, you know, the 2020 census happened, you know, a year after you know, uh, remember the El Paso shooting, mm -hmm. you know, when very publicly during, you know, what was often a cold and dark time, you know, uh, you know, with the Trump administration for many Latinos, 
you had this very public spectacle of hunting Latinos, of once again reproducing the narrative that Latinos are here and they're taking over and they shouldn't be here and they need to be eliminated. So all of this is in the same context. Yeah. These things are not separated. I mean, the, the experience that they have here and sort of the narrative that they know about whether they belong or they don't belong sort of manifests themselves in the way that they think about um, a racialized experience. Lord Gomez, um, it's all the other census context for the Trump administration is that there was actually supposed to be a change, right? At least it had been recommended by the Census Bureau's technocrats that there be a change in the way that this ethnicity question worked. Can you tell us a, a little bit about that and and who blocked it and why? Yes, and let let me just let me just also just kind of uh, first piggyback on something that uh, Christina said, which is really I think important, which is in addition to the Trump effect, the other. The other thing that we have, if we say, what happened between 2010 and 2020 to change these numbers? The Trump effect is huge, right? And it's, it's, it's something that I predicted, but it's, it's huge. But the other thing that we have, which, you know, is actually something that as wearing my critical race theory hat that I talk about a lot is we had in 2020, after the horrible murder of, of uh, George Floyd, this summer and fall of protest in which people were acknowledging uh, structural racism and systemic racism. And, and so I want to put that on the table as well. Um, one of the proposals that the Trump administration refused to, um, to back, despite this voluminous record of Census Bureau um, study over 10 years, was to merge the 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 Hispanic ethnicity question, right? Are you Latino or not with the race question? And that would have dealt with the problem that Christina was referencing of the about 40%, uh, you know, 38 to 42% since 1980 when Latinos were first counted on the census. It would have been a place where those self-defined other race Latinos would have gone. And we also found in those studies, the Census Bureau found um, that white, those people who said that they were white, I call them census white Latinos, were happy to go there as well. So I think that part of what you're seeing in 2020 is somewhat of a, a you know, the chickens hum- coming home to roost. Is that the right saying? Um, <laughs> I shouldn't get into agricultural sayings too much. I wasn't, a, a, you know, too much involved in that as a kid growing up in New Mexico. But, but um, uh, kids around me were. Anyway, that's, that's, the, that's one thing. The other thing that didn't happen in the 2020 census is, is Trump wanted to have a citizenship question, right? And that was designed to deter mixed, mixed legal status households and undocumented people from participating. The Supreme Court put a stop on that. And then the Census Bureau itself resisted and successfully pushed back on Trump's plan to not count undocumented people in the 2020 census numbers, um, which are primarily used for redistricting and which the Constitution says must be a count of everyone, regardless of their age, their eligibility for voting, etc. Paul, you're listening to this conversation. Um, what's your take on the number of Latinos who have stopped marking white on their census form? I have a lot of thoughts that come to mind. I think, um, you know, I'm not 
I don't have an immediate kind of like, this is a really radical moment. I think, mm. you know, to build on the conversation with Profe uh, Gomez and Profe Mora, like certainly the Trump effect, it's really clear there's a moment of anti-Latinx, right, um, is during the Trump moment. But I think what I just don't, there's something about the narrative of other that continues and, and, and this other being a, a project around racial mixture, right? Like I, I think about that LA Times piece on, 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 the, on the fact that the numbers have dropped of, of Latinx people checking off white and this idea of the browning of brown America. Um, I'm not really convinced that it is as radical of a shift. Um, mm. I, I feel like it's still the same kind of narrative from 2010, from 2000. I also think about the work of Nancy Lopez, Miriam Jimenez Román, uh, particularly around the campaign of checking both Latino and Black, and not necessarily to, to have Black be synonymous with African-American, but also to particularly articulate a certain kind of Blackness that stems from Latin America and the Caribbean, right? And that has, all, that has been present in the United States, right? Way before Arturo Alfonso Schomburg migrates from Puerto Rico in the early 1900s, right? So I think it's important to think about this shift not as, I don't know, the question of whiteness and Latinidad has always been something that folks have been always kind of intrigued by and always is kind of consumed by, but I'm also just don't think that the shift is radically changing. My question is more like, well, why aren't Latinx folks falling into indigeneity? Mm-hmm. But is it about the category of Native American and indigenous that still keeps folks to not identify with? Why are they not falling into Blackness, right? What is it about Blackness on the census that still reads as anything but Spanish speaking, right? Um, And I think other race becomes this really murky mestizo category. We're talking about how Latinos identified on the 2020 census and the nuances of racial identity with Paul Joseph Lopez Oro of Smith College, Laura Gomez of UCLA, Christina Mora of the University of California, Berkeley, We'll be back with more Forum after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how Latinx people identified on the 2020 census and the nuances of racial identity with Christina Mora, Associate Professor of Sociology and Chicano Latino Studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and author of the book Making Hispanics. Laura Gomez, Professor of Law, Sociology, and Chicana, Chicano, and Central American Studies at UCLA and author of Inventing Latinos, A New Story of American Racism. And Paul Joseph Lopez Oro, Assistant Professor of Africana Studies at Smith College. Um, Paul, I want to come back to you uh, and get to some listener comments and questions because they've been, they've been coming in. Um, a listener writes, as a mestiza, I consider myself a mix of European and indigenous ancestry. I usually select the other box on the racial the racial box. I have not check, checked Native American on the census because I assume that box is for enrolled members of tribes. Should Latinos with indigenous ancestry start checking 
the Native American box. And this kind of goes to your point about well, how, how come more folks aren't falling into indigeneity uh, as opposed to, you know, other or, or staying in the white box? Yeah, no, precisely that. I mean, I think they're, you know, this is where I turn to like at the ground, like activism that's coming from Black Latinx, Indigenous Latinx communities, right? Specifically thinking about the Afro-Latino Forum based in New York City, the Black Latinas uh, No Collective, right? Where there's data collection, right? So Zaire Vinci Flores at Rutgers University is collecting data on Black and Indigenous Latinx folks in New York. I think there's there needs to be a dismantling around, well, what gets to be configured as Native American? What is necessarily this idea, like if we were to even think about indigeneity in the Americas, right? Not solely based on a U.S. imperial categorization and a tribal affiliation, right? Um, but what would it what would it mean for a mestiza who knows their ancestry to be one of European and indigenous descent? What would it mean to even change that number of indigenous folks identifying in the US, right? And also dismantle this kind of um, imperialist history around who gets to be indigenous and who doesn't get to be indigenous. Yeah. Let's bring in Lesvia from Fremont into the conversation. Oh, Welcome there. to the show. There was no. Hello, can you hear us? Yes. Oh, hey, go ahead, you're on. Oh, yes. Uh, so the question was, how do I identify as in the Census Bureau. Mm -hmm. I, in my background, I know that I am a Native American from Guatemala. And so I identify as a Native American Latinx. Mm. And do you, um, does that feel like a comfortable, like you feel good with the racial and ethnic categorization that's on the census for you? Yes, I do. I feel like, well, I'm a Native American, for sure. So the Latino part is just that I was born in uh, Guatemala. So that's the part that I am Latino from. And that's 171% sure I am because of uh, my ancestry uh, from Guatemala. So, All right. Thank you so much for that call. I'm going to go to Andy in Fremont. Hey, Andy, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Hi. Hey, go ahead. Tell us your story. Yeah, so um, I recently did uh, 23andMe and discovered that I was 8% Native American. I'm, I'm of Mexican-American origin. And does the census have a standard around, at a certain percentage, they're considered Native American or not? That is very interesting, Andy. Let's uh, let's throw this one to Laura Gomez. Sort of in general, it's really interesting to hear people's responses. It's like they, it's like a test almost, and they want to like mark the correct answer. Um, how do you think about about how people should, what people should mark, and how they should think about what they should mark? Well, I don't necessarily want to put it in should terms, right? Because people should mark what they want yeah. to mark. But but what I would say is, remember, that it was only in 1970 that people were even deciding for themselves. So in that year, we saw this huge increase in the number of people saying they were Native American. Um, I think it was about a 40% um, increase, right, that people could say it. And so there's not going to the question, there's not a threshold of 
it's it's you what you say what you choose what boxes you want to check you can check right um i guess the other part that i would want to just get back to is um and because i have to leave to teach soon is get getting back to professor professor oros um comments about uh why is it that we're not seeing an increase in indigenous identification on the census and in terms of the Afro-Latino identification? And the fact is that we are. Now, we're not seeing that perhaps as in as large as we might think it's there, but it's there. Finally, one thing um, about, you know, I think there is some research out there that suggests, and this is certainly true in, in my family, that on these ancestry tests, it's very, very common for Mexican Americans to test 30, 40% uh, indigenous. Mm-hmm. But almost all of us, all of us, that's about where mine is. And most all of us are, are not affiliated with tribes. And so I think it can get very, very tricky how we position ourselves, especially in a state like New Mexico, where there's, you know, there's 20 tribes, right? right and, right. and not wanting to overclaim. Um, uh, last quick thing. Because I know you need to go. Um, in your book, you wrote, you know, privileged Latinos must today decide whether to cast their lot with, quote, honorary whites or the, quote, collective black, as sociologist Eduardo Bonilla terms it. Do you see what happened in the census in 2020 as Latinos deciding to cast their lot, you know, away from being honorarily white? I really do. I really see a movement in that direction. Has it gone far enough? No, but I think it's moving in that direction. And I I think that if you you put those numbers together, as Christina did earlier, you really are seeing a trend line. We're going to have to wait and see what 2030 shows, right? But it suggests a kind of racial consciousness, uh, increased race consciousness that reminds me of the race consciousness in the 1970s that was a product of the Boricua movement and the Chicano movement, which followed up on the the Black liberation movement. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Laura Gomez, professor of law, sociology in Chicano, Chicano and Central American studies at UCLA. Have a great class. Christina uh, Mora, I wanted to ask you about some of the sort of generational differences that that might exist within you know these uh, populations. Do you notice, or do we know for a fact through through research that there are major differences in how people decide to classify themselves based on you know their their age or you know the wave of immigration that they came and things like that? We don't have enough good research on this, but that the ones that we do, like if we just think about the way that people are presenting themselves politically or political narratives, we know that it's basically the younger generation, millennials, Gen Z, that are pushing the boundaries of the way that people have described Latinidad in the past. I mean, Latino uh, study scholars know that there was a time, certainly in the American Southwest, where the biggest way to sort of describe Latinidad was to sort of connect it to whiteness, right? Mm. If we think of the American GI Forum, if we think of LULAC of the 1950s, uh, 1940s, et cetera, and sort of the big shift and change that happened in the 1960s with things like the Chicano movement, the Boricua movement that pushed against that, right? And that exalted ideas like Aslan, like the importance of indigeneity, like the importance of African roots. Um, And so I think that many of this older generation that could have been the vestiges, what uh, Mario Garcia, historian, would call the Hispanic generation or the older Mexican-American generation, 
we're seeing that really um, sort of come to pass as newer, younger generations are, one, learning Latino studies and Latino history and sort of seeing their experience as one of much more racialized and not necessarily the sort of white experience or just like the Italian or just like the Irish American experience um, that others have had. Uh, Professor Otto, Paul uh, Joseph Lopez Otto, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, there's a fascinating conversation between two people that I, I really love, Maria Elena Garcia and Maria Hinojosa, which some many people probably know from Latino USA. And they were talking about, you know, basically Maria Hinojosa was like, I am a person of color. And Maria Elena Garcia adopted the position that essentially she, she didn't want to take up that space uh, of a person of color because she felt like she had kind of a, a light skin privilege that allowed her to uh, navigate the white world differently. Um, how, do, how do you see those kinds of conversations that are going on in, inside our communities? Yeah, I see those conversations um, actually come up in my classroom a lot, um, especially at Smith and, and when I previously taught at the Department of Latin American Latinx Studies at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, I think these are conversations that are happening where, you know, the the the, the political urgency of people of color really allows for a much fluid and expansive understanding of Latinx folks as never really having full access to American whiteness, right? Um, and there's complexities around colorism, there's complexities around anti-Blackness and anti-indigeneity in those spaces. But I think when folks are falling into a recognition and identifying as people of color, it allows for this constant, um, you know, I wouldn't call it obsession, but I would call it kind of this fixity, right? Because there is this long history um, as Professor Mora has has been speaking about, about whiteness and its relationship to Latinidad and its relationship to Latinx communities, particularly in, in, in the Southwest, that we can also see that in Florida, right? We, we can also see that in parts of New York, but I also think that geography, I mean, I go back to geography, right? And I think geography really shapes a lot, even, even the categorization of people of color, right? I think it is not a coincidence that uh, a growing number of Afro-Latinx folks are on the East Coast, right? Um, and that Afro-Latinx folks, right, have examples like Celia Cruz, like Roberto Clemente, like Arturo Alfonso Schomburg, um, to be able to identify their Blackness and Latinidad simultaneously, right? And, and I'm thinking of the work um, of Professor Flores at UCLA that does work on Latinx Indigenous folks. I mean, Los Angeles's numbers on indigenous Latinx folks has certainly increased around activism of reclaiming um, indigeneity as part of one's identity. And I think the the even people of color allows for that fluidity and, and expansiveness um, to develop. Yeah. We're talking about how Latinos have identified on the 2020 census and kind of a the, the, lot of the nuances of ethnic and racial identity with Paul Joseph Lopez Oro, assistant professor of Africana Studies at Smith College, and Christina Mora, associate professor of sociology and Chicano Latino Studies and the co-director of the Institute of Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley and author of the book Making Hispanics. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, which you should do, Go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal.
wanted to get to another listener uh, comment, which is just a fascinating um, case. A listener writes, I self-identify as Filipino-American. I checked the Hispanic box because the influence of Spanish culture upon the Philippines from a colonization longer than many Latin American countries is undeniable. I get a lot of pushback on this, including among Filipinos. Fewer associate Hispanic with Asia. I want my census report to help both underserved Latinx communities and Filipinx communities. What does the panel think Filipino-Americans should ideally report? And let's start with you, uh, Professor Mora. Oh, um, this, is, this is great. Um, that once again, we shouldn't get into should because we have self-identification, right? And we have the Bureau... We want of- your expert advice, Professor Mora. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say from the bureau's perspective, this is this is a nightmare. This is this is hard. Um, they had, you know, when the when the category was being formed in the 1970s, everyone was fretting about what Filipinos would do. Would they become uh, Hispanic or would they choose Asian? Right. And so the idea was that if enough Filipinos chose Hispanic, this would inflate Hispanic numbers and their ideas, lower the Asian American numbers, and this sort of set lots of groups on edge, right? The like what this category would do to other racial categories was really difficult. And so, yes, absolutely. I mean, this is the messiness of the way that we try to impose these rigid categories on what really is a global, you know, a global nuance and complex dynamic and that our categories just don't really fit or the ideas of our categories just don't really fit, one. And two, how there is always, always a gulf between identification on these forms and identity, the way we carry ourselves, the way we think. And I think in this particular case, uh, Filipinos are fantastic, are a fantastic uh, case in point. They certainly have sort of uh, a Spanish heritage and they certainly, you know, there's a fantastic book by Professor Anthony Ocampo, um, of, you know, that calls Filipinos the Latinos of Asia. And so at the end, if they'd like to fill it out, then they can fill it out. There's certainly Asians in Latin American, right? There's certainly an important Asia diaspora, uh, especially, you know, everywhere south of the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, But in this case, you know, I think this highlights just the messiness of all of this and how if we really think that this is just science, if we really think that, you know, our scientific conceptions tell us that the racial categories that exist are only white, black, Asian, Native American, or the list goes on, or that Hispanic is really just an ethnicity, I think these are the ways in which this is messy, right? And this changes over time, and it changes across countries and geographical contexts. Um, And that's important to keep in mind. There's really just no right or wrong answer because at the end of the day, this is a mix of what we think is science and the way politics works in this. Professor Paul Joseph Lopez-Oro, I'm really curious what you're thinking about. You know, ethnicity, people try and kind of police this boundary sometimes. Not, I'm not saying you two are doing that, but people try and kind of police this boundary. Like, oh, no, no, no. Hispanic is an ethnicity and these things are races. And in this conversation, you know, that has really been been called into question. Um, how, do you, how do you see this? Oh, I knew this question was going to come up, particularly because I, you know, I, gosh, it's a complicated one, right? Because I do... 
in the work and, and a lot of in the, in the scholarship, right, that you see, you know, Latinx, Latina, Latino, Hispanic um, is an ethnicity, right? It's, an, it's a cultural marker, right? It, it marks a linguistic common shared history um, with cultural expressions, right? But I also think it's a marker that has a racialized experience, right? It's an it's an ethnic marker, it's an ethnic signifier that has a racialized experience that at times, you know, I don't really fully understand sometimes the narratives that really come out, especially when we think about the census and Latinidad about, well, are Latinos racially confused? They don't really fit. And there's a lot of this confusion also is because this document is incredibly difficult, right? I think <laughs> about my own family filling out the census, right? And even though we've always checked off Black because we were, you know, my grandparents, my parents are Black in Honduras, but they're also Black in the United States. So that identity hasn't lost, but th this Hispanic category got really confusing, right? <laughs> and especially in the context in Central America where Black people in Central America are not seen as part of the nation state. So now they're in the US and they're kind of like, huh? How, how do we become Hispanic? How do we become this category? And I think at times um, this, this narrative of like racial confusion um, for me stems deeply from a hemis hemispheric lens on mestizaje. We've been talking about Latinidad Mestizaje in the 2020 Census with Paul Joseph Lopez Oro, Assistant Professor of Africana Studies at Smith College Christina Mora, Associate Professor of Sociology and Chicano Latino Studies and the co-director of the Institute of Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley and author of the book, Making Hispanics. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.